Okay, so we're about done with Luke. We looked at most of it on Easter. Uh, we're going to move into Acts this week. Luke and Acts are two volumes. They're both written by the same guy. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. So I want to read the very end of Luke and the beginning of Acts so you can see how uh, these two things are tied together. Then Jesus opened their minds. So this is after the resurrection. Jesus is with his disciples so that they could understand the scriptures. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And when Jesus led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now this is Acts starting in chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have now seen him go to heaven. So you can see there, Luke and Acts, the way Luke ends is the way Acts begins. We need to see them as connected. The same guy wrote them, volume one, volume two. If Luke is all about um, how the Holy Spirit worked through Jesus, Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit works through Jesus' followers. If Luke is focused mainly on Jesus going to Jerusalem so he can die and be raised to life, Acts is all about Jesus' disciples leaving from Jerusalem so they could proclaim his death and his life. We read there that Luke said in my first volume, I talked about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which implies in this second volume, he's going to talk about what Jesus continues to do and teach through his followers. These things are very closely connected. You can see there they have a lot of the same features, ending and beginning. Jesus appearing to his followers, waiting on the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that more uh, next week. The followers would be witnesses, Jesus ascending into heaven. So uh, again, I want you to hold both of these things together. Let me give you a little context. It'll take us a while to get through Acts. I would imagine a year or so. So you're going to forget this. But for now, you can remember, hopefully, you're getting your mind uh, a little orientation. Acts 8.1 is the theme verse for the rest of the book. And so Acts 8.1 excuse me, lays out what we'll see over the course of the rest of these 28 chapters. This idea Jesus says to his followers, you'll be my witnesses. That's what we see. They're his witnesses. They testify according to who he is and what he's done and who they know him to be. And then in Jerusalem, chapters 2 to 7, Judea and Samaria, 
chapter 8 through about halfway through chapter 11, then the ends of the earth halfway through chapter 11, all the way through to chapter 28. So that's how the book breaks down. It's this expansion of the gospel message starting in Jerusalem and moving out to eventually encompass what they knew to be uh, the world at that point. It was a known world to them at that time. And the same thing, you can personalize that verse, and you can say that's actually a, a theme verse for us. We've said before that we live in the book of Acts, that spiritually that's our time frame. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's given us the Holy Spirit, but he has not yet returned. So the spiritual conditions that prevail in the book of Acts during those first 30 years of the church are the same spiritual conditions that prevail now. Lots of things have changed politically. Lots of things have changed technologically. But nothing has changed spiritually. And so that's where we place ourselves spiritually. That's our context, the book of Acts. So as we go through the, this book a verse at a time, I hope that you'll be able to make some connection points with where you are in life. And you can see Acts 1-8, I hope, as a theme verse for you. It explains the book to us, and I hope it can begin to speak to you about your life as well, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that next week. That's first. That's core. Then we're witnessing. Originally, that word meant eyewitnesses. And so people who taste, who, who touched Jesus and had conversations with him and saw him. But over time, that word just came to take on the, the idea of anyone who had a testimony about who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. And that, that's all of us. Any of you that have a personal relationship with him, the calling on your life is to be a witness. We talk all the time about doing your deal, living out your calling, the good works that God has created in advance for you to do. All of those things, whatever the specific is for you, falls under that umbrella of being a witness. When you, share, when you demonstrate hospitality to someone, that, that's a witness to the fact that Jesus came to welcome us into relationship with him. If you're working for justice... That's a witness to the fact that Jesus came to make things right. So whether, regardless of how you see your specific calling, it all fits under this umbrella of witnesses. And we say all the time, you've got to find your Marietta. You've got to figure out where God is calling you. That's this idea of to the ends of the earth. Whether that's here in Marietta or across the world, he's calling you to be a witness wherever it is that he's planted you. So again, I hope you can see yourself as we move through Acts in this book. Let's, verse 12. This is an interesting, honestly, kind of an odd story to me. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. Those are his biological brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Judas was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, the field of blood. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. 
Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from heaven. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. So this is a, this is a very unique 10-day period in history where Jesus has ascended into heaven, but he's not yet given his spirit. So this is a non-repeatable 10 days in history. And during that time, this is what the disciples are doing. They're, they're hanging out in Jerusalem because Jesus said, you need to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. They don't know exactly what that means, but they're just being obedient. There's 120 of them. We see Peter has again taken a, a, a leadership role. He's been restored. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus predicting Peter's denial. And he also says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. So we see Peter fully restored. And it's not just Peter that thinks so. The other 119 people in the room do as well. They're all acknowledging him as a leader. We see Jesus' mother Mary is in the mix now. She's her connection to Jesus seems a bit ambiguous throughout the Gospels. There's a point in Mark 3.20 where her and her other children say to Jesus, he's out of his mind, but she's also at the cross. And so she seems to have followed him, even if she had a lot of confusion over what exactly he was doing. And we also see his, I guess you'd call them his half-brothers, children of Joseph and Mary. You know, Jesus, uh, Mary was his only biological parent, so I guess we'd call them half-brothers who were there. One of them is James, who wrote the book of James towards the end of the New Testament. He becomes a leader in the church. These guys, according to John 7, 5, did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry, but on the backside of his resurrection, they did. So you have this group of people, and Peter says there needs to be 12. We're 11. We need to be 12. Judas, through his betrayal, he's not one of us anymore. And then he, this little aside about how Judas dies, if you remember Matthew, it may seem um, contradictory to you. Matthew talks about, doesn't say anything about Judas buying a field. He gives the money back, the 30 pieces of silver back, but the chief priests use that to buy a field. And so Judas buys it indirectly. And Matthew says Judas hung himself. And what it, I would say is Judas hung himself and he started to decompose and either somebody cut him down or the rope snapped and... He kind of exploded when he hit the ground. So there's your visual before you go to lunch. So that's, the, that's Judas. And so what Peter says is, we've got to fill his spot. Now, they never fill another spot. In, in, in Acts 12, James, not the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of John, one of the original 12 apostles, he's killed. And they don't fill his spot. And they don't do that ever. This is the only time we see them filling one of the places abandoned by one of the twelve, and I think it's because Judas actually did abandon his place. They're probably thinking back when Jesus said, the twelve of you are going to sit on twelve thrones, and you're going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel, and they're going, well, there's only eleven of us now. We've got an empty, we got an empty seat. Judas is no longer one of us, not because he died, but because he betrayed Jesus. James, even when he dies, he's still one of us. He was a martyr. He's, he, he still gets one of the chairs. Judas doesn't get a chair anymore. And so we've got to put somebody in there. There's need, there needs to be 12. And so they, uh, I don't know how they get down to these two, uh, Joseph and Matthias, and then it says they cast lots. We don't know exactly what that is. 
Maybe they took rocks and they wrote Matthias on one, Joseph on another, put them in a cup, shook them up, first one out. That's how they say, well, that, that's God's will for this. Proverbs 16.33 says, we cast our lots into, the lap, into our lap, but God makes the choice. So in the Old Testament, you'll see casting lots regularly, and it's their way, the Old Testament way of including God in the decision-making process. This is how we get God involved. We give him room to make the final choice. What's interesting to me is like we never hear about Matthias ever again. We actually don't hear about any of the disciples except Peter, James, and John ever again. We never hear about Mary again throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is the last that we see of a lot of these guys who are so prominent in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So again, unique 10-day period in history. What, if anything, can we take from it? I thought of two things. One, which I think is a kind of a fundamental big idea, and one which is very practical and kind of nitty-gritty. So my big idea, I was thinking about this idea of Jesus ascending into heaven. Ephesians 2.6 says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that we are seated with him in heavenly places. So Jesus has ascended into heaven, and according to Ephesians 2.6, we're seated with him. And I've always pictured that like this. Jesus is on this somewhat uncomfortable throne, and we are seated with him. But this week, I started thinking about that picture instead. When I think about being seated, I think about resting. And when I think about resting, I don't think about an uncomfortable throne. I think about a lazy boy. Maybe even one of those double ones. I don't know. So to me, when I think about being seated with Christ in heavenly places, that's what I'm thinking about. The idea of resting with him. Jesus sits down after he's accomplished his work, and because any of you who are following him, that means you're in Christ, that's a technical term, and where he is, you are. So if he is seated next to the Father, then so are you. If he's seated in heavenly places, then so are you because you are in him. And we see this pattern going back to creation. Five days God prepares. He creates the heavens, he creates the earth, he creates the land, he creates the sea, he creates animals, he creates birds, fish, he creates vegetation. And on the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve. And then we see on the seventh day, we see this idea. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. That's an important idea. God rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he was done. That's repeated again. God rested from his work. So God's seventh day is which day for Adam and Eve? Their first day. They're created on day six, so their first full day is day seven. And guess what they do? They rest. They don't do anything. They can't be tired. They weren't even born. They're not resting because they're worn out. They're not resting because they've been working. God rests from his work. Five days of creating the world, one day of creating Adam and Eve, seventh day he rests. Adam and Eve's first day, they don't do anything, they rest. And when we talk about rest, remember we say we're not talking about sleep, that's fine. We're talking about vertically connecting with God because he's the one that renews and restores us restores us and horizontally doing things that recharge us so that's day one for adam and eve and then god says here put them in, put you in the garden and you're going to work it 
God rests from work, we work from rest. Huge, huge, huge difference. Ideally, if Sunday is a Sabbath for you, if you don't run around like a chicken with your head cut off, if Sunday truly is a day of rest, it's the first day of the week for you. And so then everything that you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday comes out of the fact that you have first rested vertically and horizontally. And then you work out of that spot. God is different. He works first and then he rests. We rest first and then we work. You see the same pattern in redemption. We see this in Hebrews. When Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for our sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. He'd done his work. In John 5, Jesus says, My Father is always working, and I am too. And then when he's hanging on the cross in John 19, what does he say? It is finished. I'm done working. It's over. Now I can rest. Jesus, we see, rests from the work of saving us. He rests from the work of reconciling us, of redeeming us, bringing us into relationship with the Father. We're different. We begin with rest. You see that there. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. The idea for us in redemption is we rest first and then we work. This is Watchman Nee. It's a quote from him. He was a, a missionary in China back in the mid 1900s he wrote a book called stand or excuse me sit walk stand and this is from the first chapter most christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit but that is a reversal of the true order our natural reason says if you don't walk how will you ever reach the goal what can we attain without effort how can we get anywhere if we don't move but christianity is a queer business he could say that back then if at the outset we try to do anything, we miss everything. Listen to that. If at the outset we try to do anything, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. We are invited at the outset to sit down and enjoy what God has done for us, not to set out to try and attain it for ourselves. The idea we begin by trusting in Jesus and the work that he did for us, because you're a, if you're a Christian, you were in Christ, and the work he did, you did, even though you weren't even alive then. It's credited to your account. We died with him. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. We died with him. You did, you're like, I didn't die. You did, because you're in him. So when he died, you died. The work has already been done for you. So when you approach God... You don't do so saying, I've got to let my good deeds outwork. I have to have more good deeds than bad deeds. When you approach God, you don't say, I've got to scrub off all of my guilt and all of my shame. When you approach God, you say, I recognize that the work of Jesus was sufficient for me. Because of what he has done, I don't have to do anything. I just get to climb up in the recliner and sit next to you. I don't have to do anything else. You're already saying, that's where I am. I'm already at your right hand because of the work of Jesus. And then from that place, we absolutely walk. Ephesians says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. And five different times it says walk, 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 walk. So absolutely, we, we live lives of 
obedient faithfulness, but we do that from the place of rest. Remember creation. We work after we first rested. Same is true in redemption. We work, we live lives of faithfulness and fruitfulness after we first recognize I'm resting in the work of Jesus. My obedience doesn't make me more pleasing to God. My obedience doesn't cancel out any bad things that I've done. The blood of Jesus is what cancels out the bad things I've done, not my good works. And so I'm free to live a life of faithful obedience because I'm not using that in order to earn God's favor or earn my way into a relationship with him. And every step you take in the Christian life after the first step is just like the first step. We begin with rest, acknowledging what God has done for us in Christ, and then stepping forward in obedience. That's why Jesus says, wait, don't, you got, don't do anything yet. You're going to be my witnesses, but you can't be my witnesses yet. You've got to wait on the gift the Father has promised. Once you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, once you've been empowered, then you can be my witness. Don't try to be my witness beforehand. That's working before you've rested. And so for all of us, that's where we begin as well, acknowledging the gift of God's presence in us, the Holy Spirit. Then he in us enables us, empowers us to live a life of obedience. You get that. Rest first, then work. Guy came up to me after the nine o'clock service and he said, ask them this. Do they live out of quiet or do they live out of chaos? That's the difference there. If you're resting and then working out of rest, then you would say you live your life out of quiet. Mark 135, before Jesus did anything, he pulled away to spend time with the Father. You see that throughout Luke. Before Jesus does anything major, he pulls off to pray. From that place of rest, then he obeys and works. You get that. Second thing. So I've been reading this book kind of coincidentally. It's called Decisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. It's not a Christian book, but it's pretty good. And so the premise of these guys is we're terrible at making decisions across the board. Most of us think we're good at it, and they say, you're not. You're not good at it, and they have all these stats. 44% of the people in the American Bar Association would tell a young guy, don't, don't pursue law. They did a search of, uh, or a study on these 20,000 executive placements, and they said after 18 months, 40% of the guys are no longer in their spot. After four years, half of teachers have quit their job. They said we're terrible at, at making decisions about our careers or professional choices. Even in business, they look in a merger or acquisition, major decision that a business makes, all kinds of effort and analysis goes into it. And they did this study, and 83% of the mergers and acquisitions added zero to shareholders. So those were bad decisions is what they're saying. It's not, we, our guts aren't good. Our brains don't know, like we don't process the information that well. We analyze to death, but it doesn't help us. They say even personally, in 2009, over 61,000 people had their tattoos reversed. We can't even decide on that. We're terrible at making decisions. And they say you need a process. And they talk about how the process is more important than the data. And they say the process most of us use are pros and con lists. Benjamin Franklin's the first person we know who did that. And they say that's terrible. And they give you all these reasons why we're biased in such a way we don't even, it's inherent in our thinking that our pro con list, it's not going to lead you to a good decision. And so they have this other mode of making decisions, and it doesn't matter because that's not what we're talking about today. But what it caused me to think about 
was how do you make decisions and how do I make decisions? General, specific. Where do you allow God into the mix when you're making decisions? If you're making a decision that takes more than five minutes, how are you inviting God into the process? We see here in Acts, they cast lots. You don't see that ever again in the New Testament. This is the last time. And the reason they don't have to cast lots anymore is because God in chapter 2 puts his spirit within them. So they don't need to throw dice or whatever it was to figure out what God is saying because the spirit of God who guides into all truth, the spirit of God who searches the deep things of God lives within them and he can lead and guide and direct. So they don't have to cast lots. They can just ask and then obey. We've talked about this so often, but we're going to do it again. I met with a guy this week. I was talking to him, and he said, hearing God is great for you, but it doesn't work for me. And it, like, honestly, that, it used to make me sad, and now it makes me angry when I hear that because I'm like, you're being, you are being stolen from, and you don't even realize it. The enemy is robbing you of a key element of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus which is hearing his voice. And he's saying that doesn't apply to you. What is a relationship if you can't even hear the one you're in relationship with? What type of relationship do you have if you can't even communicate with the person on the other side? It's nothing. And that's not the type of relationship we have with God. And it's, for some of us, such a struggle to get our minds around the fact that God wants to speak to us. So narrow it down very specifically. When you're making decisions... How do you include him in the mix? We've talked about this before. Three major ways God wants to speak to you. Compelling spirit. That makes some of you nervous because it's mystical. The God who, the God of the universe lives within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You can't avoid that. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. He's in there. Like it or not, he's in there. So something mystical lives within you. In your rational brain, Something mystical is still living within you. So, your choices are ignore or accept. When you're making a decision, how many of you can see around the corner? None of you. When you're making a decision, how many of you can predict the future? None of you. He can. He doesn't just predict the future. He knows it. It doesn't make sense to me why we cut him off. In this book, this decisive book, these guys go through and they say experts make predictions all the time. They look at political and economic experts. And they are terrible at it. Awful. A third grader does about as well as an expert. That's what they show. These guys in their prognostications about the future, they're right about the same amount as you just looking back at last year and saying, oh, that's going to happen again next year. That's it. That's the same percentage that they have of being right about the future. But you are connected to someone who can see around the corner. You're connected to someone who loves you so much he died for you. He is absolutely invested in your best. And he knows what's coming. Why would we not include him in the decision-making process? makes no sense to me. There's a bit of it that is mystical. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. He'll speak to your mind. He'll give you some ideas that are smarter than you. For some of you, he speaks to your heart. You have feelings or you see pictures some of you may have dreams or visions none of that is scary it's just it's supernatural but so is god you've already gotten on board with that he speaks to you through commanding scripture particularly new testament tons of imperatives those give the broad contours of your life 
You don't need to wonder about whether you should forgive people. It already says so. You don't need to wonder about whether you should obey your parents. It already says so. You don't need to wonder about whether you should exasperate your children. It already says so. You don't need to wonder about whether you should give cheerfully. It already says so. All of those things are already in there. The broad contours of your life are in the imperatives in the New Testament. He also speaks to us through one another. That's what we did up here. We were praying for Abigail. Some of you didn't share. You had something in your mind and you were debating. Is that God? Is that not God? I don't know. Just say it. If it's encouraging, it's not going to be bad. And as you take those steps, you'll begin to realize, oh, that's what God sounds like. For most of you, I would actually say for all of you, if this is a point where you wrestle, I want you to hear me on this. You've already heard the Lord. You were hearing him from the the day you said yes to him. The reason you said yes is because you heard him calling you to himself. You would never have said yes otherwise. We can't find our way to him. He's got to track us down. So you've already heard him at least once in your life. And I would say you hear him much more regularly. You just don't have confidence that that's actually God. And that's one of the the primary ways the enemy, again, wants to rob you of this relationship with Jesus. He wants to convince you that he doesn't talk to you, that you need to hear from me or your mom or Kay Arthur or Beth Moore or Andy Stanley or whoever it is that you go to for answers. It's just not true. You can go directly to the source because the source lives within you. Because the source inspired this. And when you read it, there will be things that are highlighted on the page for you. Because the source also lives in all kinds of other people who love you. And if you'll be open to them, they'll speak into your life if you'll give them a chance. You can go to a doctor and you can say, here are all the things that are wrong with me. And you can get up and walk out. That's being transparent, and it's dumb. You can go to a doctor. You can say, here are all the things that are wrong with me. Dr. Bardwell, why don't you tell me? What's your advice? That's being vulnerable. If you, if you can cultivate that attitude of your heart with a few people who you know love God and love you, what you've done is you've opened up this avenue where God can speak to you. And it's not going to sound like King James English. It's not going to be... Thus says the Lord. It's not, it's not going to be that. It's going to be some guy saying, hey, I was thinking about you today. Does this mean anything? It's going to be somebody sending you a text, and, go, and you're going, wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. I don't want any of us to miss. I, I don't want you throwing dice because you don't have to. I don't want you casting lots because you don't have to. I don't want you licking your finger and sticking it up in the air. I don't want you to have to rely on a pro-con list or an Excel spreadsheet. Those things are fine. But you have access to the God of the universe who is also your heavenly father. And he wants to lead you and guide you if you'll ask him. Let's pray. Two things, super simple. Maybe three. They're all still simple. One. What about that picture? Are you living from quiet or are you living from chaos? If you would say you live from chaos, it's interesting. The Hebrew day began at night. So the first thing they did was eat and then they went to sleep. And then when they woke up, they worked. We're opposite. Our day begins when the sun comes up. And we work, 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 and then we crash at the end of the night. Not so with them. 
which one of those days seems more like you? Do you work from a place of rest or do you rest from work? God, I pray for anyone in here who would say, I live out of chaos, not out of quiet. I don't even know how to rest. I don't know how to rest with you. I don't even know what it looks like to not try to earn my way. God, I pray they would hear you speaking very clearly to them. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. God, for people who've known you for years, but continue to think and live out of this performance mentality with you, would you, would you set them free? Would you give them a picture of just being seated with you in heavenly places? It's already done. We don't have to make our supper. We just get to eat it. God, I pray for any in here who struggle hearing you. I don't want them to feel condemned. I don't want them to feel guilty. I don't want them to feel less than or chastised. I don't want any of that. But God, I absolutely want them to feel encouraged and motivated to begin to include you in the decision-making process. So I pray both for people who have a decision right in front of them. Would you speak very clearly to them for dreams and for visions and through their spouse and their friends and through your word? And God, for people who don't necessarily have a fork in the road, but if they did, they wouldn't have a lot of confidence that you would direct them. God, I pray again that you would just unlock whatever needs to be unlocked in their heart and in their mind. God, I pray they would recognize that they have been hearing your voice. They've been hearing your voice for years. They just didn't know it was you. And God, I pray that you'd put that together. And it would be one of those aha moments where the light bulb comes on. God, I don't want anybody, anybody to have, I just don't want the enemy to win. anybody in this room of the joy of being led by your spirit and of hearing your voice so whatever it takes to undo that to set us free I pray that you would come and do now in Jesus name amen ministry teams you guys can come forward we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on but if any of those three things I would say particularly if you wrestle with the whole idea of hearing God, come, I'll be up here. Come find me. I would love, there's nothing magic, but I would absolutely love for God to, to pray with you that God would open up your ears so that you could hear him more clearly. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us after this song.